It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, I hope you had a chance to get outside in the Northeast. And if you were in the, out the West, I'm sure you don't want to be outside. Uh, it's over 100 degrees. But I always say it beats the heck out of the winter. Bottom of the hour, I'm going to talk to Jonathan Turley. we got to find out what's happening with this Donald Trump. There's a report in the Hill, and I guess elsewhere, that the Trump organization has, uh, until today, this afternoon, to let the state know why they should not go after him criminally and civilly. The Trump organization and the CFO, who uh, is tight with the president, they're still not breaking and I this, this this is an example of a total witch hunt. This is an example of a total joke. So uh, I want to see what's happening with Jonathan Turley, get his expertise on that, as well as the lawsuit in Georgia. I agree with him that this whole thing, suing the Georgian officials for their election rules, will boomerang. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Any amount of harm is unacceptable and too much. But I also want to make sure that this hysteria, you know, that this doesn't drive a hysteria and that we look at these numbers in context so that we can make responsible decisions. Exactly. We don't want to be hysterical about a 500 percent increase in crime in Portland, 40 percent across the country. Well, don't overreact, everyone. Crime crisis. Everyone agrees except AOC. How do we fix it? Who is to blame? That's where the parties part. This is another bloody weekend, too, especially in Chicago, in almost every major city as well. Number two. The very first rally of the 2022 election. We're going to take back the House. We're going to take back the Senate. With your help, we are going to defeat the radical Democrats. And we have no choice. You know that, right? Yep. uh, Trump uh, is in trouble, but there is a way out. His rally was packed, which is great. Uh, flat screens weren't working, which is bad. Uh, they could not hear in the back, and his message was too much about 2020. But there is a way out. We'll go over it. Republicans and Democrats also had their own battle plan for 2022. I'll bring you the blueprints. Number one. Not just signing the bipartisan bill and forgetting about the rest I, that I proposed. And then what happens? Well, Two days later, he flip-flops again. I mean, he's like a weather vane uh, going to whoever the loudest voice is at the time. Uh, unbelievable, right? Senator Barrasso and the president. Biden blew it, and they know it. Hours after revealing a bipartisan infrastructure deal, Biden blew it up by linking it to a reconciliation bill that included everything the Republicans negotiated out. The fallout is so great that even he had to walk it back in a lengthy statement on Saturday. And then he lost the left because of that lengthy statement. It was a rookie mistake for a guy that's been doing it at 78 years old. He's been doing it since he was 28 years old. How does he make that mistake? You know, if, if there was a rookie president, it was Donald Trump. You know, he's in politics. You know, you do a deal and sometimes you uh, you do things that are ethically uh, fine, but, you know, it's just not the way you do it in politics. That, I expected that. I didn't expect the Biden administration to forget to commemorate D-Day. I didn't expect the Biden administration to go ahead and do a summit with Russia without any preconditions and without any goals. I didn't expect the Biden administration 
to go ahead and cut a bipartisan deal, have the president walk out with it, have both sides high-fiving about it, and then goes out of his way to say this. Cut to. If only one comes to me, I'm not, if this is the only thing that comes to me, I'm not signing it. Right. What is he talking about? If only the $1 trillion, which is an all-time record, $1 trillion infrastructure deal comes to me, and I don't get the reconciliation bill, which is all the human infrastructure, which is school lunches, preschool, elder care, uh, all the Green New Deal crap that we can't afford that will transition us off fossil fuels that we're not ready to make the transition for, all that other stuff that is obviously doesn't belong an infrastructure bill. We're going to just jam it down your throat after I dupe you into buying, going for this one, Bill. I'm not kidding. Cut one. What we agreed on today is what we could agree on, the physical infrastructure. There was no agreement on the rest. We're going to have to do that through the budget process. And we need a fair tax system to pay for it all. I'm not going to rest until it all both get to my desk. So by moving forward with this two-track system, are you putting the bipartisan bill in jeopardy? Sure. The bipartisan bill was, look, the bipartisan bill from the very beginning was understood there's going to have to be the second part of it. I'm not just signing the bipartisan bill and forgetting about the rest I, that I proposed. I proposed a significant piece of legislation in three parts. And all, all, all three parts are equally important. Okay. Please, just listen to me for a second. This isn't inartful. It isn't we all make mistakes. This is nothing to do with making a mistake. Was he tricked into that? No. He went out of his way. He goes, look, and he tells you flat out, I'm not signing the one that I signed with Mitt Romney and Bill Cassidy and, uh, and Susan Collins and Joe Manchin. I'm not signing that unless I get all the other stuff they don't want. Are you? I, I, we were on this show and we couldn't believe it. And Saturday, they couldn't believe it. And then after he comes out and walks it back on Saturday and says uh, he walked back saying he gave his word that he would sign the bipartisan bill and he intended to do so. But he hopes to have the other stuff down the line, which can be done with just Joe Manchin. Now, Joe Manchin goes, yeah, I want to sign the reconciliation bill, but I'll sign for an extra $2 trillion. Biden says I want $3 trillion. Sanders wants $5 trillion. By the way, we don't have any of this money, and the money he already spent, the $1.9 trillion, he knows was too much because he said we have money left over to pay cops. Really? Well, I thought it was an emergency. We had to get this money to the people. Got him sub- everyone's supplemental unemployment insurance that said stay home and make more, which is hurting our economy. So when, the, when he walks it back Saturday in a lengthy statement, what an embarrassment, right? It's a dem- the the liberals or the, the radical left are upset with the bipartisan bill. They're happy that he made that other statement. Nancy Pelosi says nothing gets passed without the reconciliation bill. I don't sign off on the first one, the bipartisan bill, unless I get the reconciliation bill. Exactly what Joe Biden said on Thursday. And then Bernie Sanders hears about the president walking it back and came out and said, I'm not going for anything without a reconciliation bill. He said the whole thing is dead. Here's what Bernie Sanders tweeted out. There will be there will not be a bipartisan infrastructure deal with a reconciliation without a reconciliation bill that substantially improves the lives of families. And he keeps talking like a socialist. You're in trouble, Joe, and it's all on you. This is your problem with the left. Every president's got problems with their, you know, President Bush and Trump, not Trump, but Bush had problem with his wild right. And then obviously uh, Paul Ryan had a big problem with the Tea Party. But there's always a problem. You know, Jim Jordan's group always gave problems to Republicans. I get it. But this is your problem. And you started and you made it worse. 
So Joe Manchin, who deserves credit for, along with Kirsten Sinema, for holding off on the filibuster, just saving our country until uh, the Republicans went back to the Senate, and then they'll just jam everything down their throats, which makes everything worse in the big picture. Here's what he said. Cut four. This is the largest infrastructure package in the history of the United States of America. And President Biden, there's no doubt in my mind, never has been a doubt in my mind, that he is anxious for this bill to pass and for him to sign it. And I look forward to being there when he does. I can tell you there's so much good being done. <laughs> Listen, Joe Manchin must be furious. All his hard work, Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy, all of them go put their necks out, their chins out, Mitt Romney. And, and all of a sudden they find out two hours later the president is like, I'm not going to sign it. Can you imagine sitting there negotiating out and saying, Mr. President, I am not raising taxes. I am not going to get rid of the tax cuts, the, the premier accomplishment of of President Trump. I'm, I have the corporate taxes have to be lower to compete to, with other countries. It's not about corporations making more money in our country. It's our corporations be able to compete internationally to keep manufacturing here and continue to bring it back. He goes, all right, we'll work out fees and other things, and we'll, we'll take some of the existing money. We'll put it towards $1 trillion. Great. And then he goes, oh, no, I'm going to up your taxes. That's the third bill in every way, shape or form. And then I'm going to take all that human infrastructure. I'm going to jam it down your throats and I'm going to get Joe Manchin to agree on it. That's why Mitch McConnell is not going to sign off on it. He blew it. He gave Mitch McConnell an out and he told the left. You can't trust him because the left feels as though Joe Biden is selling them down the river by doing a deal that you're supposed to do as a president. That's the way it's supposed to happen when you're president. So over the weekend, Donald Trump spoke. And he had a a big rally in Ohio, and he's looking to primary. I'm not for primarying other Republicans. I never were. I know that Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney gets under the president's skin, and they went directly at him. Uh, That might be dicey. I wouldn't do it if I'm the former president. But other people that just voted for impeachment after January 6th, I would not go out of my way to waste my political capital to hurt other Republicans. Here's Donald Trump, cut 19. And all of the unbelievable, hardworking patriots who are here tonight at the very first rally of the 2022 election. We're going to take back the House. We're going to take back the Senate. With your help, we are going to defeat the radical Democrats. And we have no choice. You know that, right? We have no choice. Well, so that is the great message. And now he has all these specific things to talk about, about the wall, about immigration, about the crime in these cities, about pulling out of Afghanistan the way the president's doing it, um, you know, know, giving in to Russia, not getting anything out of it, giving up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Forget about 2020. If somebody wants to ask you in an interview about 2020 and give your opinion, okay, fine, move on. It doesn't work. I don't care what you believe. Rudy Giuliani didn't prove anything. None of his Sidney pal is now saying who would believe me. Uh, the pillow guy is not somebody I want to hang my hat on. Can you please tell me the last case he broke? Okay, thank you. Or a substantial lawyer. Whatever happened, happened. He got 75 million votes more than any other sitting president in history. Everybody was against you. You did uh, accomplish an amazing thing in four years. You almost, held, uh, almost took back the House. You should have held on to the Senate. And you did a lot better at the midterms than Barack Obama did. You added seats in the Senate and you lost the House. Obama lost 63 seats in his first midterm 
uh, first midterm. He had all those things, but January 6th is the, the worst political decision ever, and he's still paying the price for that. Last night, we understand, Saturday night, I understand the prompter gave him problems and flat screens were out. People in the back could not hear in Wellington, Ohio, and that's bad, but he got a big crowd, and that is great. Um, I would not waste my time on other stuff. I think it just hurts everybody. It lets his critics tee off, and the president does that. Meanwhile, Bill Barr gave an interview to Jonathan Carl. Jonathan Carl wrote a column. He's got a book out in November, at which time Bill Barr went up to Donald Trump, and he talked to the AP, and he said, listen, I found no— when Bill Barr talked to the AP and said, I saw no malfeasance here or widespread voter fraud— Donald Trump was furious. This was all chronicled in the Jonathan Carl interview, excerpt published in Atlantic. Um, he said he was furious at Barr, uh, publicly deflating his fraudulent claims. Uh, Barr told me that Republican leader Mitch McConnell, Mitch, uh, Jonathan Carl is saying, had been urging him to speak out in mid-November publicly. McConnell has said nothing, uh, said nothing to criticize Trump. He wanted Barr to do it. Barr did his own investigation. He didn't find anything. Um, this is his quote. We realized from the beginning it was all bull blank. He, uh, Barr told Jonathan Call that nothing in the voting machines changed the count. It would have shown up where they recounted by hand in a recounting machine. There are everything that were counted. So just to reconcile the two, there had been a discrepancy report anywhere. There hasn't been a discrepancy report anywhere. I'm not aware of any. Donald Trump went crazy, and that's going to be in Jonathan Call's book, which he'll sell a lot of books on. If you are Donald Trump, and you turn on William Barr and Mike Pence, you've gone too far. We've all in our past lost our temper in periods of time or drank too much and blew up and said, wow, I didn't even mean that. I got too hot under the collar. This is six months later. I mean, months later. And when you, when you alienate Donald, when you alienate Mike Pence and William Barr, Mr. President, you've gone way too far. And you have, you're going to hurt your own political capital and any chance to run in 2024. What do you think about that? One eight six six phones are working. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Jonathan Turley at the bottom of the arrow with the president's going to fa- face financially, uh, and uh, what about the Georgia election law changes? Uh, are they really unconstitutional? As the attorney general said on Thursday, uh, by almost all means, I think this is a fight the Republicans should welcome big time. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. So glad you're here. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. 
In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. And let's talk about who defunded the police. Uh, when we were in Congress last year trying to pass a rescue plan, or, I'm sorry, not the rescue plan, but an emergency relief plan for cities that were cash-strapped and laying off police and firefighters, it was the Republicans who objected to it. And in fact, they didn't get funding until the American Rescue Plan which our plan allowed state and local governments to replenish their police departments and do the other things that are needed. So, look, Republicans are very good at staying on talking points of who says defund the police, but the truth is they defunded the police. Please tell me, the only thing I didn't have a chance to ask Eric for is to put a laugh track underneath that. You know, the one from Friends that is really annoying and loud, uh, literally at night. Uh, we always have the TV on at night. The only thing I ask for is no laugh track. I can't sleep through it. I don't know. It's just annoying. I never bother me with the odd couple. But Cedric Richmond really wants the American people to think Republicans wanted to fund the police? Are you kidding me? The law and order party? That you had a president of the United States say into, uh, you go back to the days where you beat him with billy clubs? You were so outraged. He put national troops in to try to bring some uh, calm to Portland and Seattle and you really think it's Republicans that wanted to defund the police? You tell James Clyburn that, because it single-handedly almost lost them the House and will lose them the House. Here's Congressman Jim Banks, cut 27. Joe Biden is being held hostage in the White House by the squad and the radicals in the Democrat Party who control their party, who have spent the last year stigmatizing one of the most honorable professions in America, in our law enforcement. It's not just about defunding the police, which they fully support, but over the last year, they've talked about stripping qualified immunity protections for police officers who do their job, cashless bail and decreasing sentences. It's a recipe that criminals in every city in America are liking what Democrats are selling. And that's why you're seeing cr- unprecedented crime ra- waves across America. Tell that to the people in Minneapolis. They know exactly what happened. You defunded the police. You defamed the police. You blamed them. And they don't show up and get out of the car anymore. Then you're going to get rid of qualified immunity? Really? So you're going to sue me if I arrest a drug dealer and you you assume that I'm too rough with him? Uh, or uh, they don't? I go to a domestic dispute and one side ends up deciding that I'm the problem because I showed up to a domestic dispute cause because a woman was in distress. Next thing you know, they get back together and sue the cops. Because you don't like the way maybe they manhandled the guy that was allegedly beating up the woman. This is all, they're not going to get out of the car. And they're not. Twenty Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion. And it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
50% have left the Minneapolis police force. They can't fill up an academy in New York, in Los Angeles. They laugh when they get the acceptance for the academy when people show up. Look what's happening in Austin. Defunded and defamed. That's the story. You want to hear about more defaming? A former retired LAPD sergeant who's turned anti-cop probably was. This is what uh, Cheryl Dorsey said. Uh, Cut 22. Officers now we see across these 18,000 police departments are butthurt because, you know, they can't run willy-nilly through a police department and abuse with reckless abandon. So they're stepping away from specialized units, too cowardly to quit outright the department, but they're stepping away from units. I don't necessarily think that there's an uptick in crime. What officers, police departments, police chiefs, those who are savvy, try to do is pull back, make communities suffer just a little bit so you'll miss... That heavy-handedness. Do you believe this? This is a retired sergeant. Sinful. Their their butt hurts. They don't want to get out of the car and lying about statistics. A new low. Jonathan Turley's next. He'll bring he'll bring the show up. He's going to talk about what Donald Trump's really facing uh, in these New York charges, as well as Georgia. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Department of Justice is suing the state of Georgia. Our complaint alleges that recent changes to Georgia's election laws were enacted with the purpose of denying or abridging the right of black Georgians to vote on account of their race or color in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Where we believe the civil rights of Americans have been violated, we will not hesitate to act. Well, I, I watched that. Merrick Garland, by the way, not a great presenter. Uh, looked very nervous. I mean, uh, I mean, Harley came out as authority, and uh, I, I, I'm listening to what he's saying. Without, I didn't spend those years in law school that Jonathan Turley did, and I'm about to bring him on. I'm saying to myself, do you really want this fight? Do you actually want to put this in front of an honest judge to decide if these, if these rules, if these new regulations hurt minorities? And if so, how? And you heard the president say uh, Jim Crow 2.0 and Stacey Abrams walk it back after said something similar. And then you have an all-star game get canceled and they must be red-faced now with Major League Baseball. Now they want this fight because they lost their S1 fight to revamp and nationalize elections. Jonathan Turley with us now, uh, law professor at George Washington University, uh, Fox News contributor. Jonathan, uh, I, I, I watched what you said and I read what you wrote. The Democrats may rue the day that they did this. I think they very well could. You know, the in fact, I, I'm very skeptical about this lawsuit. The Georgia law has considerable overlap with a great number of other states, including blue states like New York and Delaware. And the president himself seems to have sort of floated as to what specifically about this law is what he calls Jim Crow on steroids. Uh, the voter identification provisions are very popular with voters in both red and blue states. That's clearly not something that they're going to have a good chance, I think, of, of uh, fighting. Uh, but many of these other provisions um, are, I think, easily defendable from the perspective of the state. And the key here is that the Constitution itself leaves to the states uh, how to handle elections. 
And Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers actually <laughs> addressed this when he said, essentially, imagine if the federal government tried to take over how elections were run. And he said, you know, that's clearly not going to happen. Well, that's what just was attempted in Congress to effectively federalize elections. I think the courts are likely to push back on that. For example, how do you prove it's against minorities? Are we assuming that minorities don't have ID? You assume that blacks don't have ID? You assume that uh, a certain segment of our society doesn't have transportation uh, or can't get to a drop box? I mean, you have legislated drop box for the first time in Texas. They, there's, excuse me, in Texas too, but in, in Georgia, you have all these things that, yeah, they reigned in front pandemic related. How do, number one, what do you, where are they vulnerable? Where are the, where's the Georgia law vulnerable? Yeah, that's a very good question. They were short on specifics. The most that they gave us was that uh, they think that this might violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. There's a case on that issue in front of the Supreme Court right now. And so they could have a rude awakening if the court comes down uh, with a narrow uh, uh, interpretation of that section. But the other thing is that there's much of what's in the in the Georgia law is updating their election rules. You know, they allow for voting boxes, for example. They restrict the number. They require security. Those are the types of steps that I find it would be very unthinkable for a court to say, well, that violates the rights of minority voters. They've also um, essentially codified the time in which these polling places can stay open. But that provision is virtually identical to a lot of other states. It doesn't actually limit uh, these districts, as the president suggested, to closing at five. To the contrary, it says you must stay open for that period of time, but you're allowed as in every other state to go until seven or uh, later. So that would be rather hard uh, to challenge. There are you know, requirements as to proving your identity. Uh, that's going to be sort of the focus of it. But that's going to have a hard time as well. You know, the, the court of public court opinion said, likes ID, right? Right. And the Supreme Court has never said that uh, requiring identification and proof uh, is a violation of the Voting Rights Act for these types of conditions. These are basic conditions of driver's license numbers or the last digits on your Social Security to have an added identification. So uh, we'll see how that goes. What kind of time schedule is it on? Do you have any idea? Well, this could take years in court, but it, but it, the problem for the uh, Democrats is that this could easily result in uh, an initial ruling, uh, not only before the 2024 presidential election, but conceivably you could have a very fast ruling before the midterm elections. Now, you don't know who you're going to get as a trial judge. There's some that might give this greater uh, uh, um, credence than others. But ultimately, they're going to hit a hard stop in the Supreme Court, and that could happen easily before the next presidential election. In fact, it could happen just before that election. And what happens if the Supreme Court comes in and just destroys this narrative and says, no, this isn't a violation of voting rights? Uh, and I, you think it's uh, – well, we'll see what's going to happen, and then it's all going to be about the judge. Then they're going to turn around and go, well, that's a Trump judge or that's a Bush judge. <laughs> Well, that's the funny thing is all these Democrats and with some, you know, they had good reason on occasion to to criticize uh, the president. I did when he attacked some judges on a very personal level. And I wrote columns saying, you know, that's just not 
Right. You know, you can't just assume that because someone was appointed by Clinton that they're just a robot. Uh, and all these Democrats were this hue and cry over attacking judges. They're all now attacking these judges, saying, oh, it's a, it's a Trump clone. You don't have to listen to anything they have to say. Uh, a couple of things. Today, uh, I've, according to reports, the Trump organization is given to this afternoon to come up with reasons why they shouldn't be criminally and uh, civilly indicted. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, obviously these, these types of deadlines are sort of meaningless. Once a prosecutor has invested this amount of time, it's unlikely they're going to have that epiphany and say, oh, my God, this is all politics. Uh, what will be interesting is if this is just a prosecution of the Trump organization you know, the, and not Trump himself. Also, the other interesting development is that his main aide, his main financial uh, officer, was widely rumored as flipping, and there's no evidence that he has done that. Uh, and that was the biggest hope of a lot of Democrats in New York, is that they could get him to flip, and then they could get an indictment of the former president. This is really about the Trump organization. You know, I'll tell you, Brian, the thing here is that large corporations um, all tend to do a variation of what is being investigated in one sense. That is, and it's not to excuse it but to try to devalue your worth for the purposes of taxes taxes, and then overstate your value for purposes of loans. Everyone, Everyone. is familiar with that. And, and the, so if you take any major corporation, you're likely to have these types of problems. So if it's bank fraud and tax fraud, those are easy types of cases to convict on for the jury, but they're also fairly ubiquitous uh, in, in businesses. So it's just such a bad idea to charge somebody because they were president. You could have won after him any time on any of this. But people trying to make names of other people, I think, is uh, is terrible for our country. I mean, if Barack, I mean, Letitia James ran on indicting him. I will I will indict Donald Trump. I will I'll charge Donald Trump. She ran as attorney general on this and now wants to be governor. And how do you do that? Yeah, I wrote about that when she did it. I thought it was unbelievably uh, inappropriate. She was running on the – she was basically running as a scalp hunter. She was saying, if you elect me, I'll bring this scalp in. And that's not good. You don't head hunt. You don't scalp hunt. You don't you know, trophy hunt uh, as a promise for uh, election. And you know, the thing here is that it, it, there's a fascinating shift, right? You have all of these legal analysts who for four years said – Trump's going to be indicted on Russian collusion. He's going to get indicted on Ukraine. He's going to be indicted on the Trump Tower business. Uh, he's going to be, you know, indicted on his hotel and foreign, you know, uh, countries' uh, investments. None of that happens. So now they're saying, "Aha! Look, we got him." Well, if they do indict him, it'll be on stuff that occurred before he was ever president. It would be on these types of business tax right. and fraud claims, and it's not clear that he's going to be personally indicted. Now, they're looking at a couple of things. One is, uh, I mean, obviously, a tax and bank stuff. There's also an investment in New York where Trump was apparently thinking of breaking up some property in New York and developing it and was told that he couldn't. And so his the corporation did a sort of clever move, perhaps too clever by half, and they donated some of the land. But when they did that to get the sort of back payment of subsidy from the government, the claim is that they radically overstated the value of what they were giving up. Again, that's a fairly common type of allegation. 
but I, that's the type of stuff we're, we're sort of looking at, and but we still don't really see whether he would be indicted personally. Yeah, but they, uh, I guess I, they're looking for something like that. But it's going to put them through the ringer, and I, I just see it as pure politics, and and it's just chance for uh, you know to try to bleed that company dry. Lastly, Rudy Giuliani uh, is somebody that lost his has his light, law license to practice suspended. You think this is a bad sign for everybody? In what respect? Yeah, I just wrote a piece about this uh, because. You know, I was a critic of Giuliani's. I have been for a, uh, a few years just because I find some of his statements to be totally baffling. He did make statements that I think were not supported. He continued to make them uh, despite criticism. So I was one of those who indeed did criticize him. But when I read this opinion, it made me really gulp. I mean, the opinion itself is more of a venting than a vetting of allegations. I mean, it. First of all, it relies almost entirely on his public statements. You know, the only discussion they have of stuff that he did in court involved a, primarily a case where he withdrew the fraud claim, and, which usually means that this is, is that he did the right thing by withdrawing the claim. It happens a lot. He wasn't held in contempt by that court. He wasn't sanctioned by that court, at least not yet. Uh, and then they just went into his public statements. But right in the middle of the uh, opinion, they say, you know, and our investigators believe that his public statements uh, helped cause the riot in, in, in the Capitol. Like, what? I mean, because it, it, it seems to be a judgment on, on his public persona and the condemnation of what happened in Congress. That would never stand up in a court of law. If you tried to say, we're going to hold him accountable for the riot in Congress, it would collapse. And so it's very concerning. This, this could be used by, against a wide array of lawyers who straddle that line between politics and the law. And I really do think that the hatred for Giuliani is blinding lawyers to the dangers of this opinion. Or they could see it helping their career if they're the one, right? Like you used to be a lawyer. If you take down the blind shake, you become Andy McCarthy and be a, a coveted interview and writer because you've done something. But now if you take down a celebrity um, or you take down a high-profile name, you can make that – you can make a name for yourself. That's right. And this is really uh, – this opinion is just dripping uh, with overheated rhetoric. And – it's clear that they wanted to get Giuliani. They don't really state a standard, and that's very, very dangerous. That would mean that they could go after anyone who has a bar license because they contributed to social unrest. Uh, and, you know, I think that he could have an appeal here. You know, he really, if they go forward and they basically indicated they were going to disbar him, he could well have a First Amendment appeal appeal here. And the thing that really missed me as a free speech advocate is that they, they just brush over the obvious free speech issues here and just brush it aside. And they just say, well, he knew he was lying when he was talking publicly. And that's all we really have to say about it. All right. Um, so it's going to be an interesting day. You know that as soon as this uh, indictment comes down to the Trump organization, uh, CNN will have something to do besides January 6th. So they're going to be breathlessly <laughs> reporting uh, this whole thing uh, today. I just I feel bad for Alan Weisenberg. This guy, he's, he's a CFO. He knew he used to work for his dad. 
But right now, unlike the Michael Cohen situation, the president's playing it smart, if you ask me, keeping his CFO close because they're going to threaten him uh, with years in prison, right? Yeah, and so far he doesn't seem to have budged. Uh, and so that, that's the most fascinating aspect. Of it because Do we actually most- know what they have, though, Jonathan? I think that all that they have is uh, overstatement of an understatement of value spending on tax and in uh, bank loans. That's what we know of that they were looking at. But, you know, it's funny, Brian, because years ago I was working for a different network and they sent me his tax, uh, his bank, uh, some of his bank material. And they said, is there anything here? And when I first looked at it, I said, whoa, yeah, there is. He's like claiming six billion dollars of assets. I need to look at the rest of these uh, these papers. And when they said it to me, I just broke up laughing because on this one page, there was one line that said basically name value $3 billion. <laughs> it was it was typical Donald Trump. He was just basically saying, I'm worth $3 billion because I'm Donald Trump. Now, we all sort of chuckle at that. But the fact is, he was open with the bank. He said, yeah, yeah, $6 billion, but $3 billion of them is because I'm Donald Trump. So that doesn't make for a good bank fraud case. It makes for a, a fairly good laugh, but not a good fraud case. And, and bankers making their own decisions. You know, I, I just don't right. get it. I, I, Jonathan Turley, thanks so much. My pleasure. All right. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. Calls when we come back. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, uh, welcome back, everybody. Um... This is, uh, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering if there's enough time to find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-G-O-L-D. All right, this is uh, J.D. Vance. We expected it. This week he's going to announce he's going to run to fill, uh, to fill that seat that's going to be available in the Senate because Rob Portman's going to retire. He's going to be strong. He's 36 years old. We know about his bestseller, Hillbilly Elegy. We also know that he's been growing up, what working class, became an Ivy Leaguer, served in the military. He is going to be tough. I think that's uh, – I cannot wait for that announcement. There's other people who wanted to get it. It's going to be tough to win in Ohio, but I think he can do it. I'm not sure he's a big Trump guy, though. Next. Bipartisan centers have asked the CDC and TSA when they will update the mask update. I love this. Hey, guys. Why am I still wearing a mask on a plane and on a train? We can get vaccinated. It's up to us right now. Let these private companies decide. Please, CDC, tell us what's going on. Uh, so, uh, meanwhile, French authorities are launching an investigation into this spectator that held up a sign. Follow me on this. In French, a message to the German grandparents who caused a massive crash. Listen. Oh, my goodness, Phil. Oh, my oh no. Happened. Oh, I cannot believe what we are seeing. What on earth has happened? The whole field is somersaulted down. This is absolutely unthinkable. The French, uh, the woman, uh, put a sign out there, got in everybody's way. The first guy hit her. Everybody flipped over them. We should just cancel the Tour de France. It's one problem after another. Enough bike racing. Do something else. Just do some foot racing and stop with the cliffs. 
And don't make, don't make, if you're French, don't make up German sons and go to the Tour de France. That's something we could all learn from this and grow from. Brian Kilmeade here. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, one 408 7669 We come to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. A little bit later, we're going to be speaking to um, uh, Dr. Godsod. He's a psychologist and professor at Concordia. We've talked to him before about this whole critical race theory. But not to get emotional about it, just get factual about it. And he's going to break it down, why it's so damaging. And just to be clear, nobody out there, I know a lot of people listen to me of all uh, walks of life, uh, uh, male, female, um, uh, Italians, Irish, African-American, everything. I get it. Nobody's walking away from America's past, but we appreciate that was the time they lived in. They're trying to change the National Archives now because they realize they made the – get this. This is the quote. They made the national – they made our founding fathers look too good. You got that? Do you understand this? Our National Archives is racist. So we're going to talk about that and how you're just breeding a whole group of people to hate America and just try to make it so much better as if our generation knows everything. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Any amount of harm is unacceptable and too much. But I also want to make sure that this hysteria, you know, that this doesn't drive a hysteria and that we look at these numbers in context so that we can make responsible decisions. You believe this? Don't overreact and get hysterical about crime. That's a woman who's thoroughly protected. Yeah, crime is a huge problem. Even Joe Biden agrees. How to fix it, who to blame? That's where the parties part. This is after another bloody weekend in which 64 are shot in Chicago. But we won't overreact or get hysterical. Number two. The very first rally of the 2022 election. We're going to take back the House. We're going to take back the Senate. With your help, we are going to defeat the radical Democrats. And we have no choice. You know that, right? Uh, That is the president. He had a big rally, about 96 minutes. It was packed, which is good news. He did not have great uh, flat screens, didn't work. And a prompter, he says, was uh, giving him hell. And I don't like he talked way too much about 2020. Michael Goodwin on that uh, shortly. What the Democrats planning on doing for 2022. What the blueprint should be for Republicans. We'll discuss it all. Let's bring in Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist uh, and Fox News contributor. After I tell you the number one story of the day. Number one. Not just signing the bipartisan bill and forgetting about the rest that I proposed. And then what happens? Well, Two days later, he flip-flops again. I mean, he's like a weather vane uh, going to whoever the loudest voice is at the time. Unbelievable what Joe Biden did uh, on Thursday. He blew up a bipartisan bill two hours after supporting it, says it won't be passed without a reconciliation bill. And then comes out on Saturday and he says, I really, uh, I, uh, I got to make this clear. I'll pass the bipartisan bill. The reconciliation bill will be separate, ticking off Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and everyone, every radical lefty on the planet. Unbelievable that a guy who's been doing this since 1978 can be so inept. Michael Goodwin, welcome. 
Good morning, Brian. Michael, this is unbelievable. They're trying to tell us he was being uh, unartful when he said, I will not pass the bipartisan bill without anything, without the the multi-trillion dollar bill that they negotiated out of it. Here's what he said. Cut one. What we agreed on today is what we could agree on, the physical infrastructure. There was no agreement on the rest. We're going to have to do that through the budget process. And we need a fair tax system to pay for it all. I'm not going to rest until it all both get to my desk. So by moving forward with this two-track system, are you putting the bipartisan bill in jeopardy? Sure. The bipartisan bill was, look, the bipartisan bill from the very beginning was understood there's going to have to be the second part of it. I'm not just signing the bipartisan bill and forgetting about the rest I, that I proposed. I proposed a significant piece of legislation in three parts. And all, all, all three parts are equally important. What's wrong with him? Well, as the Wall Street Journal editorial board called it the, uh, after the first go-around, he said, they said this is the, uh, the uh, infrastructure double-cross. And that's exactly what it was. Uh, the Republicans negotiating with him uh, did not think that they were just doing part one. They thought this was the infrastructure bill. And apparently he had a secret uh, understanding among Democrats because they all came out and said, you know, that's right, he's right, when he said that uh, he wouldn't uh, just pass the bipartisan bill alone. So clearly there was a double cross going on. The Republicans fell for it. Um, As uh, Susan Collins said, this was not our understanding. And so, yes, I I think uh, there clearly was uh, an attempt to mislead and a successful uh, attempt to mislead until it blew up. So this is... You know, look, uh, Brian, this is either incompetence or something worse. And the something worse, of course, is that Joe Biden doesn't know what he's doing, that he's not in control of his own faculties. Uh, I mean, if Donald Trump made a mistake like this, there'd be calls for impeachment, for resignation, for cognitive testing, for psychiatric care, uh, the 25th Amendment. Uh, Robert Mueller would be trotted out of retirement again. Uh, you name it. But Joe Biden does it. New York Times puts it on page 20 well, when this kind of nondescript anodyne headline that but, doesn't tell you what the story but is. But it about. was the subject of all the Sunday shows because he blew up the bipartisan bill that he signed to it. He, he agreed to two hours prior. But he does have Bernie Sanders says I'm, and Nancy Pelosi both said, I'm not signing this bill. I'm not even proposing it unless the reconciliation package was was uh, attached to it. So they're not even on the same page. And if Donald Trump did, it would be like a rookie mistake. This guy's not a rookie, and he didn't mistake it. He said it definitively. Yeah. And he said three tracks. The third track, you know what the third track is? Raising everybody's taxes. Yes, and the Republicans are certainly not passing an infrastructure bill, which we, we can all agree the country needs uh, continuing infrastructure improvements for expansion and for growth. Um, But the Republicans are not going to do that if the price of it is raising income taxes and blowing up the 2017 Republican tax bill, which lowered taxes for 80 percent of the public as well as corporations. If you start raising, if Biden goes down the road of, oh, we're just going to raise corporate taxes and those taxes on the wealth, on the wealthy, corporate taxes means lower profits for corporations, therefore lower Uh, lower employment opportunities for many people. So this is like economics 101. And so this isn't just a 
a sort of slip of the tongue that can be corrected. There is an inherent contradiction in what Biden is trying to do for the economy with these taxes and humongous spending bills that are really just throwing money uh, around the country. I mean, we see it here in New York. There was a budget crisis until the feds bailed out the city and the state. Now the city and the state have more money than they know what to do with. They can't even spend it fast enough because that's how much this, the feds just showered on them. And if it's happening here, it's happening everywhere. It is it's absolutely crazy. Here's what Bill Cassidy said when he puts his reputation on the line, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and uh, and other Republicans. Um, and then you have uh, Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin and Senator Warner. Here's what he said when this came out. Cut seven. We were assured that the two would not be linked. Yes, the human infrastructure, if you will, as they call it, would be pursued, but the two would not be linked. Why is that important? First, there's bipartisan opposition to the non-hard infrastructure portion of their bill, bipartisan in both chambers. So, I mean, and they sat there, they were aghast. They called, and then Bernie Sanders comes out and says, I'm not signing anything like this. This is, it's not enough. It's more than we've ever spent on infrastructure, ever. Yes, it was, it's a trillion point two. I mean, it's an enormous bill. And to say that it's not enough is because the Democrats have decided that they are going to flood the country with cash. They are just going to paper over every problem, throw money at every issue, and see what happens. I mean, they are desperate to keep the Congress in 2022. That's really what this is about now, Brian. It's about uh, keeping people happy, contented, even if they don't have to work, even if they, even if they don't want to work. We will pay them to stay home. We will throw money at every, at every uh, level of government. And we will keep the economy running uh, with government money. I mean, that is worse than an experiment. We know how those things end. The rise of inflation already is a worrisome sign. But, but Democrats don't have another bullet in the gun. This is their only idea, is flooding the, money, flooding the country with money. I mean, it is not sound economic thinking by anybody's measurement. My, Michael, uh, I read your column about Eric Adams. I think the whole country is looking at this mayor because we're trying to see if anybody understands that security matters to the American people. And Eric Adams is a critic of the cops. And Ray Kelly, for one, is not a fan, but is, he's the best of the lot, perhaps. Not, my, not his words, but I get the sense that he grudgingly would hope for the best. And being that he came out and put, a, put money out of his own pocket when there was that shooting, he says, I want to find out about this assailant. I'm going to take money in my own pocket to reward somebody who can come forward with an identity. And when you saw that happen, when his, uh, when his volunteer got stabbed, while helping him out in the last day before Election Day. Maybe Eric Adams can bring back law and order. But listen to AOC. She believes all this rising crime is hysteria. Cut 21. We are seeing these headlines about percentage increases. Now, I want to say that any amount of harm is unacceptable and too much. But I also want to make sure that this hysteria, you know, that this doesn't drive a hysteria and that we look at these numbers in context so that we can make responsible decisions about what to allocate um, in that context. Yeah, we got to get the bartender to tell us to calm down during times of strife. Like that 21-year-old Marine that got the bullet ricocheted into his back over the weekend. He shouldn't overreact to get hysterical. Am I right, Michael Goodwin? 
Yes. Um, she, she, she acknowledges the statistics but says we can't overreact. We have to analyze them. The statistics are pretty clear, AOC. 160 people got murdered last year in New York. 160 more people got murdered than the year before. That's pretty clear. Those are real human beings, and hundreds of others got shot who wouldn't have gotten shot the year before. So the statistics are not just statistics. There are real people behind them. And if she wants to talk as though the statistics don't matter or we have to be careful how we interpret them, then she should, she should, why didn't she do a ride-along with the NYPD crew one night? in Times Square where that uh, Marine got shot over the weekend. I mean, the bullets are flying you mean all where around we New York. You mean where and we were? AOC, if AOC wants to sit in Congress and yeah. pontificate, good luck with that. I want you to be here's a little Donald Trump's rally on Saturday night. He had a big crowd, cut 20. Together, we will send Joe Biden and the fake news media. There's a lot of people back there. Do you miss me? They miss me. They miss me. I know. They look at their bad ratings and they're saying, we miss this guy. Well, that's true. I mean, we, we do better at five, six in the morning or five in the morning than, than Anderson Cooper does at night. So what do, what do you think of his appearance? I had a real problem with the fact he keeps talking about 2020. Vilifying Bill Barr is a huge mistake, as well as Mike Pence. How do you feel about it? I agree, Brian. I, I, this has to be a forward-looking idea. Uh, looking back, uh, I think there are certain people who will galvanize around that, but I don't think it's anywhere near a majority of the country. And I, I also think it's, it's, a, it's a divisive way of approaching people. And I think if Donald Trump wants to have a second act, he's going to come up, have to come up with a second idea. It can't just be looking backwards. It's got to be, he did some great things. But history moves on. The country is moving on. We have new problems now, and you have to address the current problems. I, I don't think it's wise for any politician to look backwards and to use that as a grievance for the future. I think you've got to embrace the future. You've got to embrace what people are experiencing today in their lives, not what you think happened uh, last November. I voted for Trump. I wanted him to win. But it's time to look forward. Right. Even if it's with him, it's got to it's got to look forward. Now, another thing, Michael, real quick. I am outraged that the indictment of the Trump organization and criminal charges could go against the former president. I'm outraged as an American to go back and look at someone's taxes and decide that they overvalued or undervalued or they had somebody as a consultant and they were a major player or if someone paid for private school and they're the CFO for their kid. I'm outraged that that is the subject of our attorney general with this whole uh, this whole city ridden with crime. Yeah, well, and the Manhattan D.A. as well. The Manhattan D.A. has never found anybody to prosecute except Donald Trump. The Manhattan D.A. had to be bludgeoned and shamed into prosecuting Harvey Weinstein. But Donald Trump, no-brainer. And then, of course, leak, 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 leak. Cyrus Vance is a disgrace to the profession of law enforcement, and he really ought to resign today rather than waiting for the November election. Michael Goodwin, always great to hear from you. Consequential times. Uh, even though you're, we're in New York, everyone's looking to see if this city's going to get straightened out first. So far, not yet. Michael, thank you.
My pleasure, Brian. All right, one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Our phones are back up. First time in quite a long time, so I want to hear from you. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back, everyone. Let's go out to Rhonda listening on the Fox News Radio app in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Rhonda. Hey, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to comment about what, what might be the um, the upcoming strategy for the 2022 election in terms of the Democrats. And I think that they're going to continue to use probably three things in my mind. Number one, they're going to keep capitalizing on the Trump hate. You know, I, I live in New Mexico. There's a lot of Trump hate. And you can't, even if a policy makes sense, if it's associated with Trump, it's go, it's like out of their minds. It's like, no, no, no Trump, nothing Trump. Hey, Rhonda, can I just interrupt? Do you realize Trump how hate. insane that is? Because the border, you're a border state and you're, you're a state that yes. they stopped yes. drilling. They stopped drilling on federal, on public federal land. You're all yes. federal land. It's crazy. But they, they don't they don't see it. They're blinded by this Trump hate. That's number one. Number two. They're going to flood the state with money, which they're already doing. We're a poor state. We've got generations that are on the, the government dole already. They love it. They love the free money. So that's going to they're going to capitalize on that. And number three, this critical race theory. You can't even find out what it is on the Internet. You can't find out the things they're teaching the kids. It's, it's going to be another, like, misinformation, and they're going to say the Republicans are, are going against the blacks. They're going to go against all races. So we live in a state with all brown skin. I mean, I grew up, this is not a racist state, but they're going to use the critical race theory against the Republicans when really, like you said, you, you can't even go on the Internet and find out really what it is unless you listen to families that have been in schools that teach that white people are racist the minute they are born. Rhonda, we're going to get into it. We're going to get into it with our next guest, but don't worry. There's a huge groundswell of support about just what you're saying. Do not get close to giving up hope. There is so much right going on right now with some of the backlash, those people trying to purvey that uh, out out in in, in mainstream America, in Main Street America, that I think you're going to be, I think this is all going to blow up. And for people who think this is manufacturing a culture war the Republicans want, no. This, this is a war that Republicans were handed. And if they don't fight for it, uh, we lose the integrity of the country for a generation, maybe forever. I'm not kidding. When we come back, Dr. Gad Saad joins us, a psychology professor at Concordia on CRT. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. You know, we're talking about critical race theory almost every day. Uh, You know, people mock you like uh, President uh, Barack Obama if you... If you bring it up, they say, oh, wow, why is that a big deal? What's the big deal? You learn about other cultures. Uh, General Milley comes out and says, I read Mao. It doesn't mean I'm a communist. I read Stalin. It doesn't mean I'm a fan. He totally misses the point. That's not, I mean, uh, for example, I remember we had to read Mein Kampf in school. That was part of understanding what we were up against in World War II and the mindset of the Nazis. 
Everybody understands that. I give these these uh, these officers tremendous credit for putting that in. But that's not what anybody's talking about. Not to uh, talk about skirting our history. It's talking about vilifying a certain people because they're a race of some uh, because somebody 200 years ago did something who happens to be your race that people now color negatively. Dr. Gad Saad joins us now, a psychologist professor at Concordia and author of The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious, is, is How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. He's also the host of a podcast called The, the, Saad, uh, the Saad Truth with Dr. Gad Saad. Uh, Dr. Saad, welcome back. Oh, so good to be with you. Thank you. So uh, first off, before we just get into talking about the issues of the day, can you give everyone an understanding where you came from? You came over here at 11 to America, right? Where were you? Right. Well, that's that's why I'm really well placed to talk about all this identity politics nonsense, because we we were part of the last group of Lebanese Jews that had steadfastly remained in Lebanon, uh, not wanting to leave because we, we felt Lebanese, of course. And then when the civil war broke out in Lebanon, it was no longer feasible to be Jewish in Lebanon. Now, Lebanon is a perfect uh, you know story to tell, because Lebanon is what happens when you... Uh, create a society in a perfect way according to identity politics lines, right? Because everything in Lebanon is viewed through the prism of your religious identity. As a matter of fact, the parliament is structured according to which tribe you belong to. You know, the president has to be of this religion. The prime minister has to be of that religion. You could only have this many people sitting as parliamentarians as a function of, you know, how many people are represented in the country of that religion. And so, this form of tribalism, which is now considered to be a very progressive value, according to some folks in, in the United States, is exactly what I ran away from 45 plus years ago. And it's, you know, it's not exactly excelling, especially when Hezbollah is the top cop, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, people don't really understand the the incredible de- danger of losing our defense of classical liberal values, you know, the defense of individual dignity, right? I am God sad before I'm Lebanese or before I'm Jewish or before I am a skin color. I present myself to the world with my unique personhood, with all my merits and all my flaws. And that's what makes some a place like the West so great. We we sublimate our tribal heritage and put forth our individual identities. That's what makes a great society, and we're now losing it at a very, very fast pace. And you know what's crazy is one of the first things I heard about the melting pot, how it doesn't matter where you came from, we get together because we believe in the, believe in the American culture. And then they start saying, well, you know what? Uh, I want to hold on to my identity. There's little Italy and there's little Havana. I get it. You want to hold on to your identity, but you want to be Americans. And we used to talk about that all the time. But now all of a sudden people – are going to be identified by their gender, uh, by the color of their skin, uh, by their sexuality, before saying they're fundamentally American. In fact, when you ask about being American, they're very critical of our past, from the National Archives to what I watch on these other channels. Exactly right. And let me, since you asked about where I come from, so my brother, one of my brothers, was the Lebanese Olympic judo champion. And he had won the Lebanese championship several years in a row. This is before we left. This is around 1972-73. So he had won it several years in a row. He was then uh, visited by some folks who sort of hinted to him that it was perhaps time for him to retire because it it wasn't good optics for a Jew to constantly win this combat sport. So he ended up leaving to France to pursue his career. Now, in 1976, 
when the Olympics took place in Montreal, he represented Lebanon. So the same guy who had to flee Lebanon because of his Jewish heritage was then perfectly willing to represent the colors of Lebanon. So that's what patriotism is about. Now contrast this to Gwen Berry, the uh, U.S. Olympic uh, athlete who was hammer thrower. Just pr- Right, who who was who couldn't believe the indignity of having to listen to the U.S. national anthem at the U.S. Olympic trials? It's insane. It's grotesque, and we have to fight back against it. I just also wonder, and if, if you have an opinion on this, because no one knows for sure, where did this start? Like, who wants this? It it almost feels orchestrated. Like, why am I talking about transgender? I mean, who brought yes. this up? I never, there was no clamor to talk. Same-sex marriage, that was a big deal. I did know people were always talking about that. But but this was something, I, where are we even talking about this for? Yeah, so I, so I, that's exactly what I talk about in the parasitic mind. So I argue that in the same way that we currently are facing a global pandemic with an actual virus, we've been facing a global pandemic of the human mind for 40, 50, 60 years. And each of these imbecilic parasitic idea pathogens were all spawned on you know within the university ecosystem so one of these dreadful idea pathogens is not enough to shatter our edifices of reason but when you put together a cocktail of this kind of you know tsunami of stupidity you end up where we are so let me give you an example or two of what 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 I mean by a parasitic idea. So postmodernism, for example, is probably the granddaddy of all idea pathogens because it purports that there are no objective truths. We are shackled by our personal identities. We are shackled by subjectivity. We are shackled by relativism. So to speak of an absolute truth is nonsensical according to postmodernism. So you could imagine, Brian, how what, what nihilism that creates, right? I mean, scientists wake up every day under the working assumption that there is a truth to be discovered. Now, yeah. for, now in science, there are provisional truths, right? What we thought was true 300 years ago might be updated in light of new evidence, but we do operate on the premise that there is a truth. Well, postmodernism completely eradicates that possibility. So what you basically have is all of this nonsense being taught in university campuses. It starts off in an esoteric department in the humanities or in the social sciences, but then the virus of the human mind breaks out of the university ecosystem and begins to infest our HR departments, our military, our politics, our Hollywood. It's grotesque, and that's why I wrote the book. Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Gad Saad is here, and he's talking about his book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. So what, I, what I'm heartened by is like people like Bill Maher, who is a, is a liberal who just makes a living viciously and sometimes inaccurately attacking Republicans, even though he'll have them on and listen. Here's what he's been saying lately. Every week I find myself pulling things from his monologue, which I would always just avoid it because it was just going to be a bunch of things. You know, Donald Trump's terrible. George Bush is a killer. What else is new? Uh, American, but he is outraged about what's happening. Listen, for example, of uh, him taking on interracial marriage. Cut 44. In 1958, only 4% of Americans approved of interracial marriage. Now, Gallup doesn't even bother asking. The last time they did in 2013, 87% approve. An overwhelming majority of Americans now say they want to live in a multiracial neighborhood. That is a sea change from when I was a kid. He's pointing out progress. He's not saying America is going down this cesspool of hate. He's saying, look at how far we've come, which is logical. 
correct? Oh, 100%. Listen, uh, I agree with you that Bill Maher is often right on many things. I, and I also agree with you that, it, you know, he becomes insufferable when he just goes completely hysterical about Donald Trump and Republicans. But, you know, I mean, at least he is on the liberal side saying some things that you and I can agree with. Uh, look, it's a mark of intellectual honesty to, uh, even though you hold a position, to revise your position in light of incoming evidence, right? So, the U.S. what used to be an endemically racist society. It certainly isn't anymore. But people want to hang on to this orgiastic victimhood narrative, right? You get great ego strokes by being a victim. And I talk about this in The Parasitic Mind. There's this phenomenon called the psychiatric disorder called Munchausen syndrome, right? Munchausen syndrome is when someone feigns an illness or a, or a disease because then they can get the empathy and sympathy that comes with being a sufferer of that disease. Well, when you look at the current zeitgeist, it's a form of Munchausen, right? It is no longer that I ascend the hierarchy of status by being the one who has the greatest merit. I need to be the greatest victim. And that's how I ascend the hierarchy of orgiastic victimhood. It's grotesque. And I despise it, and that's why I will continue to speak against it. Right, uh, absolutely. And you're not saying you're conservative, but you do point out in one of the stories I read that you you uh, actually complimented something Donald Trump did. And because of that, your colleague said, I am taking you off this paper we co-wrote together. Bring us through that process. And what you said after is so insightful. Oh, right. So let me, let me just correct one small point, if I may, uh, Brian. Uh, that the example that you just said is a student who emailed me saying that he was a co-author on a paper that he had been working on. And once his lab director found out that he said something that was complimentary of Donald Trump, he removed his name. So that's that story. But you could imagine as someone who has often come out in defense of Donald Trump, it's not very good to be a Donald Trump supporter in academia. I mean, if you think it's stuff in the media, if you think it's stuff in Hollywood, try to be someone who, who speaks my mind the way that I do from within the, you know, the, the, the viper spit of academia. But guess what? I'm a honey badger. I don't care. And I will continue to speak out. Absolutely. So just pointed out the progress we have made. So, uh, you know, we fought a war. We fought a war. Obviously, uh, 600,000 people lost their lives. And since that time, there were black codes and there was Jim Crow and there was segregation. I understand it. And there was a civil rights in the 60s. And we made huge progress. And here we are. But now all of a sudden, we find ourselves looking back. Here's what Bill Maher said is a phobia that, that liberals are suffering from. Cut 42. Uncle Joe is pointing liberals towards something they need to be more aware of. They have a bad case of progressophobia. That's the phrase coined by Steven Pinker to describe a brain disorder that strikes liberals and makes them incapable of recognizing progress. It's like situational blindness, only what you can't see is that your dorm in 2021 is better than the South before the Civil War. If you think America is more racist now than ever, more sexist than before women could vote... You have progressophobia and should adjust your mask because it's covering your eyes. And he went on to say, if you just look around the world, this is what was happening around the world. The thing about our country is we're always trying to get better. It's built in our system to get better. But we always start with the thought that we're always, uh, we're always good. So they're teaching that we're always bad until further notice. Let me, and let me give you a great example of progressive phobia, to use that term. So 
uh, the United States came out with data, the U.S. government came out with data looking at four levels of educational attainment in universities, U.S. universities. So there's the associate's degree, right, half a bachelor's, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctorate. So four levels of educational attainment across five racial groups. So there are basically 20 cells to look at. They wanted to look at in how many of these 20 cells did men outnumber women. So remember, four levels of education across five racial groups. Across every single cell, Brian, women outnumbered men. So rather than saying, well, we've certainly reached parity when it comes to participation in universities across the sexes, no, we're now doubling down, right? It is so dangerous for women to go to universities. They are so subjugated. It's basically like (laughs) taking a stroll with the Taliban. So you never revise your position in light of incoming evidence because you have to wallow in a victimhood narrative. It's grotesque. It's an attack on truth. How would you define CRT? If some parents are listening right now want to see if it's in their school's curriculum. CRT cloaks itself in the robe of progressivism while preaching the supremacy of one group of people against another. That's it. That's CRT. And they're, instead of just saying, yeah, uh, slavery was terrible and segregation is bad, how is it different if your teacher is teaching CRT as opposed to history? Well, basically it is saying uh, there is – I call it dermatological original sin, right? If you are born with, in this case, the wrong color, you're white – It doesn't matter that you have nothing to do with what happened 200 years ago to people who did it that share your skin cue, to other people who don't share your skin cue that you have nothing to do with. You are dermatologically guilty by virtue of having a particular skin cue. Now, in my case, I'm Lebanese Jew, so do I also suffer from that dermatological original (laughs) sin, or do I get a pass because, you know, I turn really brown when it's sunny? So it's grotesque. It's ridiculous. It's 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 garbage cloaked under progressivism. We just got to stop with the hyphens. Just Americans first. Uh, that's exactly it. Right. Americans first. Stop with the hyphen. Dr. Uh, Gad Saad, we'll look forward to your podcast, uh, The Saad Truth with Dr. Gad Saad. And, of course, your book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Thanks so much for elevating the conversation, doctor. Thank you, sir. Cheers. You got it. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. We'll come back with your calls in just a moment. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. This is the largest infrastructure package in the history of the United States of America. And President Biden, there's no doubt in my mind, never has been a doubt in my mind, that he is anxious for this bill to pass and for him to sign it. And I look forward to being there when he does. I can tell you there's so much good being done. And Joe Manchin deserves a lot of credit. Uh, Number one, he's single-handedly keeping the country from collapsing into fisticuffs. I'm telling you, if this filibuster went by the boards and Joe Biden was able to jam everything down our throats that Bernie Sanders wanted, and I agree with the assessment that it's as if Bernie Sanders won the election. 
And with, with Joe Biden acts moderate, he's acting against the core of his party. That's why this party is so scary. And what he did is did what he used to do in the 80s, 90s, be part of uh, uh, maybe some compromise bills, especially when it comes to uh, crime and punishment in the 90s, which he's since apologized for. So now he cuts a deal with Joe Manchin, who leads the gets a, a bunch of moderate Republicans from Mitt Romney to Bill Cassidy to Susan Collins uh, and Kirsten Sinema on his side. And they put together a deal and they blow it up. Joe Biden single-handedly blows it up definitively. Not, he doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't mispronounce anything. He doesn't inartfully speak. He says one is linked to the other. In fact, there's a third one. I'm going to raise your taxes. It blows up everything that he stands for. Cut five. I've not voted any differently than I mm-hmm. voted for 10 years. I've always been very moderate, very centrist. I tell people I'm fiscally responsible and socially compassionate. I want to find that middle. And I think there's always a middle to find. I'm sorry that this 50-50 worked out and people were unhappy with it. But it is what it is. And if they think that I'm going to change and be something that I'm not, I won't. And I've been very clear. I'm willing to meet everybody halfway. If Republicans don't want to make adjustments to a tax code, which I think is weighted and unfair, then I'm willing to go to reconciliation. That's how you're able to do it. But if they think in reconciliation, I'm going to throw caution to the wind and go to five or six trillion dollars when we can only afford one or one and a half or maybe two and what we can pay for, then I can't be there. Imagine that, just $2 trillion, two, just two, $2 trillion. $800 billion bailed us out of the 2008 crashing of Wall Street. Joe Manchin, he makes sense. He's going to lose some leverage when he's there. Uh, more good than bad. I know Republicans think he flip-flops. Bottom line is, he's keeping some sanity on the Democratic side, and that is beyond reproach. How it all ends up, I don't know, but he also saved, saved them on voting already. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest minutes of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, Tim Scott shortly. He has a big day today. He's announcing he wants six more years as senator after the first two. The big question is, does he want to be president? I think the answer is uh, yes. Uh, but we'll hear from him. And uh, we also have some uh, special excerpts from What Made America Great. Uh, which is the series on Fox Nation, available for four new episodes for a time in which we're looking around. Every day we pick up our heads and we look around, we have another somebody else hating on America in America. Like, did you hear what happened with this hammer thrower, this track athlete? Uh, She decides that she wants to, so insulted they're playing the national anthem after she wins the bronze medal and qualifies for the Olympics, she turns her back on the flag and puts a T-shirt over her head that said activist athlete on it, while they're playing the national anthem. Just sickening. But if you want something that really makes you feel good about America, special about America, what made America great on Fox Nation, I hopefully is that reason. I hope we had a chance to watch the, the special last night. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Any amount of harm is unacceptable and too much. But I also want to make sure that this hysteria, you know, that this doesn't drive a hysteria and that we look at these numbers in context so that we can make responsible decisions. Uh, That is AOC, crime crisis. 
All except AOC agree. How to fix it, though, is who's to blame, though? That's where the parties part. This after another bloody weekend in almost every major city. Number two. The very first rally of the 2022 election. We're going to take back the House. We're going to take back the Senate. With your help, we are going to defeat the radical Democrats. And we have no choice. You know that, right? Trump in trouble, kind of, but there is a way out. Republicans and Democrats now have their battle plans for 2022. I'll bring you the blueprints for both. Number one. Not just signing the bipartisan bill and forgetting about the rest I, that I proposed. And then what happens? Well, two days later, he flip-flops again. I mean, he's like a weather vane uh, going to whoever the loudest voice is at the time. It's totally true. And that was uh, Barrasso talking about what Joe Biden said in a press conference two hours after he agreed in principle to a bipartisan bill. He blew it, and they know it. Hours after revealing a bipartisan infrastructure deal, Biden comes out and says, I'm linking it to a reconciliation package, which includes everything the Republicans took a stand against, including a huge tax increase. The fallout is so great that he had to walk it back in a lengthy Saturday statement. Now he's lost his left. It's a rookie mistake by a 50-year politician. You wouldn't mind. I mean, there are some people that are savvy and smarter, but there's also... Stuff that you pick up being in politics. You just know how the thing works, what you say, and how to say it. This is, should be the easy part for Joe Biden. Knowing where it works. Putting an administration together that doesn't forget to commemorate D-Day, for example. But instead, he comes out and just says this in a press conference after not seeing his bipartisan bill and coming out and having a press conference about something else. About crime uh, the day before. He had a terrible week. I mean, S, uh, S1, which is uh, we was going to centralize all elections, which is unconstitutional, that failed. And then he uh, he try, goes and out his crime bill, can't even get three words out, blames the gun and the gun dealer for crime. That re- That's the reason why burglaries are up in New York City, 271%. And then he uh, comes out and cuts a bipartisan deal, thinks he's on a roll, and then says this, cut one. What we agreed on today is what we could agree on, the physical infrastructure. There was no agreement on the rest. We're going to have to do that through the budget process. And we need a fair tax system to pay for it all. I'm not going to rest until it all both get to my desk. So by moving forward with this two-track system, are you putting the bipartisan bill in jeopardy? Sure. The bipartisan bill was, look, the bipartisan bill from the very beginning was understood there's going to have to be the second part of it. I'm not just signing the bipartisan bill and forgetting about the rest I, that I proposed. I propose a significant piece of legislation in three parts, and all, all, all three parts are equally important. I, I, I was aghast. You heard us on this show. You were probably aghast, too, if you're following like we do. What? You did a bipartisan deal with contingencies? You didn't even tell them? It's nuts. Putting a trillion dollars into the system, and we just put $1.9 trillion into the system— these, the, you've heard the experts. They're flooded with cash. And you saw the dollar so devalued now that it's, uh, our inflation's up 3.4%, and there's no sign of it stopping. So you print more money, and none of these compliant anchor hoax Sunday shows bring up inflation? Here's Bill Cassidy. He couldn't believe it. He took the walk back and, and kind of left it at that when he walked it back and says, I'm going to do the bill by itself. Senator, by the way, Senator Sanders comes out and says, I'm not doing the bill by itself. And Speaker Post says, I'm not just doing this bill. It's got to be linked to reconciliation. Here's what Bill Cassidy said in reality, because this guy's a doctor. He doesn't really do politics well on purpose. Cut nine. 
First, CBO, I'm told, estimates that the most we can absorb per year is about $70 billion in infrastructure spending, hard infrastructure, roads, bridges, et cetera, uh, before, you know, it becomes a little wasteful. That's the capacity we have. We kind of get there. We're close to what we say is the maximum. But by the way, we go further. We also have $47 billion for resiliency. I was discussing this with the White House. I said, does that include things like coastal restoration and working in rivers to make, this, make sure they don't flood as much? They said that's absolutely what we're thinking of. So it shows you know, there's an environmental element to this, which should excite Democrats. And he said that, too. Get rid of some methane. We can cap some of these old wells, get some money to fund it. We'll do it. And, of course, they're concerned about with their shoreline in Louisiana, what the— uh, you know, what global warming has to do with it, what climate change has to do with it. I'm not sure that anyone knows for sure, but he's he's amenable to it because the people of Louisiana are, are want him to be. But when when tweeting out Sanders Sanders, I'm not buying any of this without that. So here's what Congresswoman AOC says. Cut 12. In Senator Cassidy's words, that infrastructure is very centered on women. And in addition to a bridge, you need a babysitter. And it's very important that we pass a reconciliation bill and a family's plan that expands child care, that lowers the cost of Medicare, that um, that supports families in the economy. Just to clarify, what Senator Cassie had said is my wife reminded me, he says, you know, we're on the road. We do a lot of the daycare things and we're bringing these kids back and forth to school in a lot of family situations. The bridges are for me, for women. Do you understand that she actually wants us to pay for everybody's babysitting? We have to pay for everybody's lunch. We've got to pay for everyone's babysitting. We've got to pay for expanding child care. I, I don't understand where you think we're getting this money from. That's not our system. I'm sure the, so the Russians are expecting free daycare, and I'm sure it's wonderful in stark gray rooms on linoleum floors. That's just not the way it works. There's affordable daycare in every neighborhood because people want to make money. It's a free market system. We cannot prop it up. We're $30 trillion overdrawn. So don't say we have a lot of money in this country. We've overspent it. We're spending all our money on the interest on that. So here's when AOC threatened, when AOC pointed out that Joe Biden threatened the veto, um, she said, oh, that was good. She goes, I'm trying to make him to have a successful presidency. Isn't that nice of her? She's trying to make Joe Biden have a successful presidency by having him pay for a bunch of programs, school lunches, elder care, expanded Obamacare, which is not even close to good enough anymore. They don't even celebrate when Obamacare is reaffirmed because that's not even close to effective enough. So when we come back, you're going to hear an interview with Senator Tim Scott. I just got to uh, urge you to. There's so many, uh, there's so many things out there that are anti-American. Go to Fox Nation. Click on What Made America Great. I go to about 30 different places, four brand new ones you probably didn't know anything about, just different ways in which America has proven over and over again uh, we are great, from the people involved to the events that happened to the battles we fought. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show, back with Tim Scott in just a moment. Don't move. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. In news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Appreciate it. Hope you had a sensational weekend and, and stayed in the air conditioning if you had to. But most of all, I want you to get outside because we're getting free as a country for the first time in a year and a half. So I hope you had a chance to get out. 
I spent the whole weekend on a soccer field. No regrets. But I did regret not bringing an outfit or something with maybe a collar to wear when I did my live hit on uh, Fox and Friends weekend to promote my new season of What Made America Great, which is available starting right now on Fox Nation. Uh, I did have my Folds of Honor T-shirt, which is a fantastic organization, so that was great. Uh, so meanwhile, um, coming up in about a half hour, you'll see, hear a little bit of Greenbrier, one of the most sensational things in our in our past that you probably never heard of, uh, shedding new light on it. Meanwhile, I had a chance to talk to Senator Tim Scott today. It's kind of exciting for him. He's relaunching. Uh, he wants to get six more years as senator from South Carolina. So I was able to go one-on-one with him, and I want to bring this interview back but unedited. And I want you to hear, too, uh, and listen for what everyone's thinking about, and that is, Tim, you want to win a Senate in South Carolina, and you will. But most people are saying what happens in two years when it's time to run for 2024. So we'll talk about his presidential ambitions, what he wants to do for South Carolina, and why everyone still looks at him as a rising star. By the way, all this guy does is win. Congress, Senate, two elections already, and now he's uh, on the doorstep of getting police reform, bipartisan police reform. And I think it might be something palatable for the police. My fingers are crossed. So here's my interview with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Let's talk about who defunded the police, an emergency relief plan for cities that were cash-strapped and laying off police and firefighters. It was the Republicans who objected to it. And our plan allowed state and local governments to replenish their police departments. And So, look, Republicans are very good at staying on talking points of who says defund the police, but the truth is they defunded the police. You almost wait to hear the laugh track after Republicans defunded the police. Does anyone believe that? This is bipartisan lawmakers get a closer look at a preliminary deal on police reform. Joining us now, a man in the room from the site of his Senate re-election launch today, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Senator, I know you're excited about your bus trip, barnstorm around the state, try to get momentum for six more years to do this fun job that you have. But first things first, do you Republicans defund the police? Did I miss something? Brian, you didn't miss a single thing. That is the most ridiculous thing I've heard all year long. And we've heard some very ridiculous things from the Democrats. But this is not the icing on the tape, on on the cake. This is the most ridiculous thing ever said. The facts are simple. Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, Cleveland, and New York, all Baltimore, all have defunded to police. What we've seen is a 40% increase in violent crime in major cities because the Democrats have been defunding the police for the last year plus. What we, ha- what we have done on the other side, of course, is to refund the police. Even the police reform legislation I'm currently working on provides more money for officers because the last thing you can do is ask someone to go into the most dangerous places in our country right. without the resources and without covering their liability. If you don't do those two things, you can't ask good people to go into bad places to make them even better. Senator, yesterday buried in all the, the huge news with Joe, uh, Joe Biden stepping on his own message of bipartisanship by saying, I'm going to jam uh, $4 yes. trillion dollars down your throat and then walking it back on Saturday. I'm reading the story that the framework of police reform has been agreed upon with Republicans and Democrats. You're in that room. Did you agree to something? 
Well, we've agreed to the framework, so we know what's not in it, which is as important as what is in it. So there is a framework that's been agreed to, but the language itself is still being written. So nothing's agreed to until everything's agreed to, other than the fact that we know that we are not going to make it easier for us to criminalize police behavior, and we're not going to expose the officer to more liability. We know those two things are off the table, and that's good news for our officers. All right, so you're saying that, that um, uh, the qualified immunity is off the table? For the individual officer, it's not on the table. Right. We'll, you'll go after and the Brian, state. And Brian, it's also the good to, to yeah. you're able to go after the, the jurisdiction, whether it's a local, state, or whomever, number one. Number two, I'd say it's also very important to realize that we have the law enforcement agencies, the, the NAPO, the FOP, IACP, uh, the alphabet, alphabet soup of law enforcement agencies and organizations are helping us craft the legislation. So we're not doing this in a vacuum or a silo. I'm sure Corey's talking to the civil rights groups on the other side, but we're making sure that what we do protects the officer and the community that they serve. If you can't do both, you right. shouldn't do either. And Senator, I know I don't have to tell you this, but in speaking to the number of officers that I speak to regularly, you have to make the job more attractive, more attract, job more attractive, not less attractive. You're losing people by, by the hundreds around the country. So you could blame all you want. Bottom line is, the most vulnerable are the most vulnerable because the police officer numbers are going down and they're staying in their cars because they're told not to do anything. Well, all over the country we're seeing that reaction because liberal cities and liberal councils and mayors are making targets out of police officers. It's the least common sense thing in America. I had a group of African-American leaders meeting with Attorney General Barr at the time here in South Carolina, and the question came up about defunding the police. I asked for a show of hands who wants to defund the police. Not a single leader wants to defund the police, but the liberal elites in the Democrat Party right. want to make targets out of our law enforcement officers. It's our responsibility to stand in the gap, stand in the fire, because they do that every single day for us. We're going to do it for them. So, uh, Senator, in this country, something I've never experienced in my life, more people are deciding not to work than to work. We can't get, uh, we can't get cargo off ships. Oh. We can't get uh, truck drivers behind the wheel of a car. And a lot of it has to do, even though Democrats say the data doesn't show that, that, uh, that they say has a lot to do with the supplemental insurance. In about 20-plus states, they've cut the supplemental back. What are the after-effects? Well, the after-effects of 21-plus states that have already decided to eliminate the federal benefit, enhanced benefit on unemployment, will be people coming back to work. You cannot pay people $20 an hour to stay right. at home and ask them to come back to work for something near the same. That is just uh, a, a, an undeniably difficult choice for people to make. When we in South Carolina eliminate the, the enhanced benefits at the end of this month, just a few days, people will be back at work. People cannot be given a choice between doing nothing right. and getting paid and doing something and making the same amount of money. That's just a bad decision. Senator, you want six more years at this job. He started in Congress. Uh, Senator DeMint stepped aside. He goes, I think Tim Scott would be great, and he was right. Very few people I know don't think you're doing a great job. What's your message for six more years? Well, it's a message of hope and opportunity. Promises made are the promises kept. We are going to focus our attention on, on expanding opportunity zones, expanding our economy for all people. And we, we are not going to have a blame game like the Democrats are having. We're going to talk about the unified America, the American family working together to make sure that we all prosper together. Uh, that is a simple message. It is one that we will focus on from an economic standpoint and from an educa education standpoint. School choice. Quality education is the closest thing to magic in America. That's what we're going to do, and we're going to get it done. 
And when will you decide if you're going to go six years or you're going to, after two, run for president? <laughs> well, uh, Brian, that's a good question. My, the presidency of my homeowner association isn't open until 2026. Right. So hopefully I'll be able to work through my term. Right. I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about the, the White oh, House oh, place. Brian, I, I, well, Brian, I misunderstood you. Uh, let me just say it this way. The only thing that matters is 2022. You have to win in 2022. We'll see what happens next. You guys can, of course, help me win in 2022 by going to VoteTimScott.com. All right, he's going to be on a bus all day and getting off and talking to people. Uh, it's always exciting to launch a re-election campaign. Thanks for joining us first, Senator. Thanks, Brian. God okay. bless. Wow. Uh, he's just such a likable guy, and I hope to be sitting down with him shortly and going out and getting a slice of his life, uh, Senator Tim Scott. Most people that know him become fans of him. Probably his biggest fan uh, is Trey Gowdy, who's now full-time here with his own show. And they actually wrote a book to, with each other, did a book tour together. And it's a great message uh, for people who grew up in totally different circumstances getting along. When we come back, a special look at my Fox Nation series, a look at something, uh, an American treasure that was top secret from 53 to 1991. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Special thanks to Tim Scott for joining us today. I originally planned on going out with him on it just to I want to do a a slice of his life. Uh, But I want to do it in South Carolina. I was lucky enough to do it in Washington. He does a lot of things for the surrounding community in Washington, D.C. And then I thought it would be kind of cool to see his opportunity zones uh, that he worked on and really pioneered with President Trump. He's still doing it where he gets private investment, gives private investment an incentive to go into working class or de- uh, underprivileged communities and rebuild them. So I'm going to go. I promise I'll be with him uh, probably in a couple of weeks and give you an idea of his life in South Carolina, what his focus is. Uh, the other thing is um, uh, I had a chance to to do four new episodes of what made America great. And I want to give you an idea of what you missed if you missed the special last night. This is a little of a 40-minute feature you can get on Fox Nation right now. But it is my visit to Greenbrier. This legendary complex dates back to Lou Gehrig and uh, Martin Van Buren, but was used for a secret cause. And it's in West Virginia. You're not going to believe it. Here it is. Here's some of it. One of a two-part series that you're going to be listening to. Here's me at Greenbrier in West Virginia. Almost from the moment World War II ended, the Cold War began. And we knew a nuclear attack would be imminent because we remember perhaps how World War II ended. And that's why Dwight Eisenhower, president at the time, had to come up with a way for the U.S. government to survive should a nuclear attack take place. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Kilmeade. On this edition of What Made America Great, we're going to go inside the Greenbrier bunker and find out where the U.S. government would go should an attack actually happen. Nestled in the West Virginia mountains. And for that to happen, we have to take you on a special flight right there so you can get your special tour. We have landed White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. It's beautiful. It's a tiny town of 3,000. And right away, I'm a little suspicious. Why would a town this small need a runway 7,000 feet long because it was chosen as the place to sustain the American government through a nuclear war? Why was it chosen? What does it look like? Would it have worked? It's time to find out for ourselves. The Greenbrier. It's beautiful, right? It's been in business in some way, shape, or form since the 1830s, but took this shape 
in the 1920s. It's a resort. It's great golf. But that's not what this story is about. This story is about the Cold War and why Dwight Eisenhower thought this would be the perfect place to spend $14 million to build a bunker where 435 House members and 100 senators would be able to work and survive should the Soviets attack with a nuclear attack. Thankfully, we never had to utilize it, but it's a story you're about to learn about. So I hear, for me to understand why this is the perfect place for an emergency relocation center, is to know about the history of this very place. And to help me out is Bob Conti, a historian premier uh, extraordinaire. And Bob, you've been teaching and talking about this place for how long? 43 years. 43 years. So you predated even knowing right. that there was a response center, emergency relocation right. center right next door. I go back to the mystery days, yes. Yeah, yes, the yes, mystery yes, days. The mystery days. Do you remember what it was like when you found out? Well, to some degree, it was suspicions confirmed because there were rumors floating around, but you could never confirm it. You could never be sure, and you never knew if people were just, you know, echo chamber talking to each other. So when I actually, I was sitting in a room, and the president of the Green Bar said, we are going to acknowledge a 35-year secret relationship with the federal government. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I was, uh, what amazed me was an official degree where I was saying this out loud. What was the scenario? What was the year? The year was 2009. I called the CSX about April the 15th. We had an 85-page deal on April the 29th. CSX owned it prior. CSX owned it for 100 years. So at the end of the day, I bought the Green Bar for $20.1 million. You know, it's a great, great, iconic, you know, hotel and, and grounds, and uh, I'm really proud it's in our family. But absolutely, the people of West Virginia have been so proud. This has been one of their real jewels, and it's been that way forever. You know, as they go other places and everything, a lot of times they'd say, oh, we're the state that's got the Greenbrier, you know, and that's really important to them, and it's really important to all of us. This place is so beautiful. But you also right. told me that there's, if you look at the history, we could understand more why Eisenhower thought this might just be the perfect place. I mean, well, there's a long history of the connection to Washington. You know, I'm going back to Martin Van Buren, you know, I mean, back to before the Civil War. President's been coming here, you know, five sitting presidents before the Civil War wow. visited this resort. So this was a very fashionable resort long before the Greenbrier Hotel was built. This doesn't get here until, until 1913. And then the Greenbrier Hotel, uh, you know, has been a lavish and opulent uh, resort hotel. But in the Second World War, the Green, the Green Bar was put to two government purposes, two very different ones. It was an internment center for enemy alien diplomats. So you have Japanese, Italians, and Germans. Right. And then after they leave, the Army buys this. And for four years, this was government property. This was a 2,000-bed hospital. 25,000 soldiers came through here, including people like George Marshall and, and White D. Eisenhower. Can you show me around a little? We go from World War II to the Cold War. Right. And instead of us being the only nuclear power and the atomic bomb being fresh in our minds, we quickly understand the Soviets have the bomb. Exactly. And through a whole generation, we learn in schools and through the military that nuclear war could happen. So yes. that really didn't, that's a reality that stuck with uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. How did right. that, his knowledge of here, play into where he would build this government survival center, let's say? First of all, it was away from Washington, 240 miles. And you don't want to be close to Washington. We're assuming, the, the fundamental assumption is, Washington is a primary target. So you want to be out of town, you want to be away from the fallout. Uh, and there's a railroad line that goes right to Union Station from here. So in the 50s, when they were planning this, 
the rail line was the connection. Uh, the other thing was, yes, there's this physical facility, but it was maintained in a constant state of operational readiness for 30 years. Wow. 24-7 for 30 years. So you could hide the maintenance of the bunker within the maintenance of this of this larger facility. So the year's 1958, you, they decide that if we're going to get 400-plus House of Representatives relocated, right. if we're going to get 100 senators relocated, mm-hmm. we got to get them to some place where they're going to survive. They choose this place. Right. They come up with a pretty ingenious idea. They dig a hole in the ground, they put the bunker on the bunker underground, and then they build an addition to the green bar right on top of it. So you say, hey, I'm making the resort bigger. Right. So... We're, we're, we're modernizing, the, we're adding air-conditioned guests room. Boy, you forget, in 1960, that was a big upgrade. This, this building wasn't air-conditioned in 1960. Uh, so we're adding new guest rooms. And so it was a plausible explanation. It made perfect sense The Greenbrier is positioning itself in the, in, in the modern resort world. So you get this done in about three-plus years. Right. And all of a sudden, you have a real crisis. We know it's the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there was a sense in that time, in the 60s, that we're going to nuclear war, have a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. It looked pretty likely there, you know. And remember, it stretched This was done just in time. Right. This was done in early 1962. And sitting here in hindsight, looking back, the sort of irony is that the closest it ever came to be activated was six months after it was ready to go. If I'm you, and I'm working here since 1979, and then they tell you in 1992, this appears in the Washington Post, that there's this bunker uh-huh. that was supposed to house all of Congress in case of nuclear attack right next to you. Right. Do you remember what you were thinking then? I was pretty startled. Uh, you know, as I say, there were rumors, but I assumed nobody would ever speak these words out loud. So it was pretty startling to you know, have people acknowledge it. And then that was right before the Washington Post article came out. So the story comes out. Do you remember the first time you went in there? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. You know, the man who ran the bunker wanted me to help him give tours, give tours to the employees. And uh, so he walks me in, and he opens the door, and we're in, like, this kitchen. And he's telling me all about the kitchen. What are you doing? And I was sort of disappointed. But then we just kept going and going. And, And I don't think I quite processed. I had never thought and nobody else had thought we're talking a thousand people living there for how long right well at least 60 days and maybe longer so it's all the members of the house and senate and uh, pretty much a ratio of one staff person per member so there was there were dormitories there was a dining area there was a, a power plant there were areas for the the house and senate to meet so bob this looks like just a normal convention center extension but we're actually in the bunker we're in the bunker. That was part of the cleverness. Uh, 20% of the bunker, where, where we are now, looks normal. Yeah. In, in government talk, the government had exclusive control over 80% and non-exclusive control over this 20%. And so people were walking in and out of here on a regular basis, going about their business, you know, as, as part of conferences, with absolutely no clue that they were actually inside a secret bunker. Including you. Including, And then, oh, and then yeah. they finally let you yeah. in. So this room here, had it been activated, this is where all the support staff, so there, there was a plan to break this up into to cubicles, and they had about 25 different desks. Because remember, they were bringing the institution 
And the idea, the, the broad idea was to preserve the constitutional framework. Right. People got to eat, they got to live, and they got to legislate. They got to find a way to right. get America through a, another war. Right, right. And really, everybody assumed that there was something for the president. The, the real surprise in the Washington Post story was that there was a facility for the legislative branch. Where are we looking at here? Is this, is this Congress? This is the House of Representatives. Now, again, the, the government had non-exclusive control. And this would have been used uh, by, by the public. However, had, had it ever been activated, it, it never dawned on me to count the seats here. Son of a gun, there are 435 seats here. And there are 435 members of the House of Representatives. So that's pretty cool, right? I hope you got an image of what it's like there. If you have some time in the West Virginia area, please stop by. You will not regret it. It is luxury with this uh, rural feel. But next, you're going to find out what made Greenbrier so perfect and so effective as a place to run should the Soviets attack. I go into the vault. Really, a vault. You're not going to believe it. That story, when we come back on the Monday edition, Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So picture the most elite place that you know in your area, and then find out that really the back of it, when they told you it was expanding, was really the place where the House of Representatives and the Senate would go should the Soviets try to nuke Washington, D.C., that's how shocked everybody was in West Virginia when it found out that the construction they did in the 1950s was actually a full-blown capital under the ground to protect against a Soviet attack. Now, if it was targeted with a nuclear attack, that would have been a problem. It wasn't nuclear proof. But, man, who's going to go into the mountains of West Virginia and think that's going to be the place that we'd find the House and the Senate that was picked out by Eisenhower himself, who was treated there when it was a hospital, and said— I love it. It's nestled in a place no one would suspect. It's got an unbelievable reputation. Now, I just didn't do Greenbrier. That's what I'm talking about, Greenbrier, on this season of What Made America Great. I also looked at Montauk, Little Havana, and also did uh, uh, another great feature uh, looking at the life of Hemingway. But here is part two. When I go into the vault, try to picture this, uh, and went to a place that was supposed to withstand a Soviet attack and was kept top secret. Let's listen. So this is where Congress would have to sleep together. What you're looking at here is a dormitory. So these beds, there would have been 60 beds all along here. And these are the original beds. Okay. Republicans and Democrats? Uh, no, Forced to it, live together? It, it was all by seniority. Actually, right here, they actually had everyone's name. So for 30 years, there was a piece of paper and every one of these beds which meant every time there was an election cycle, some people were, didn't, weren't reelected, uh, they had to go around and reassign all these beds. Have you taken this tour? What is your take on it? Oh, yeah. I, I have what, what does Jim Justice think of taking the, the bunker tour? You're just stunned with the detail and stunned with the fact that uh, there were so many things you walk by all the time that you, you had no clue. You had no clue whatsoever. You have a great resort, incredible golfing. Sam Snead, the legendary golfer, was the pro for decades. But the bigger story was the secret story. 1992, it's revealed. This is where Eisenhower chose to evacuate Congress along with Speaker Rayburn and LBJ should there be a nuclear attack. What did you think when this revelation came 
became apparent in 1992, and the Washington Post wrote that story. Well, I, you know, was really disappointed, first and foremost. Why? Because, because of the, of, of just uh, how secretive that it was. And for us to just, you know, unveil it, you know, it was just, I, I thought that was not the thing that should be done. Of course, I knew nothing about it. Many of us in this area suspicioned that there was something that surely had to be here. They did all this incredible construction and everything, but how they concealed it all was amazing. But at the same time, uh, you know, I, I hated it that, uh, that we ourselves would reveal something like that. Now, this reminds me of a bunker. This is what I thought it was. Right. This actually is the beginning of the bunker right here. Uh, and essentially, this is a, a, a truck entrance that goes out kind of to the middle of the wilderness. So when they wanted to supply this, they could bring it in this way, and, and people, you, know, they had, you wouldn't have to drag it through the hotel. So if they brought in new equipment or you know, whatever they needed to bring in here, they would use this great big tunnel here. So Bob, how long is this tunnel? 433 feet all the way down along here. And the whole complex is? 116,000 square feet. That's a lot of concrete. So now with 9-11, we're 20 years in 9-11 since this hit. Now people do think about what happens, what if, if they blow up our building. Now in the back of your mind, do you think about that? Well, I do. And I hope and pray that we have another facility and it's close by to D.C. somewhere, you know, that, that can take care and insulate us from the standpoint of, from, from the standpoint of keeping our government operational. We just saw how vulnerable we are. And, uh, and so, so we've got to be ready. We've got to be ready on all aspects. The interesting thing about 9-11 is I think it revived interest in this bunker because after 9-11, people started thinking, well, emergency planning is probably a good idea. And here is an example. Bob, I just love the fact that people still care enough to line up in great numbers on a daily basis to take a very similar tour we just went through. Oh, for sure. Yeah, we are sometimes overwhelmed with people who want to take a look at this uh, bunker here. Right, because you and I love history, but it's great to know Americans love history. We always, in our series, talk about what made America great. This is about keeping America, because a lot of people on the outside don't think so. This is about sustaining the government through it all. Exactly, exactly. That's what it's all about. And by the way, when you close, if I remember correctly, they told us since we had closed the last one out, we got to close the door. Yeah, we got to close the door. All right. And all this right. is a little different than most doors. All right. So just push it a little towards A little bit. Okay. okay. Now, this, is, this door is how heavy? This is 25 tons. Look at that. 25 tons. Pretty good hinges. I, I'm impressed. I'll just right. sort of, I'll help out a little here. It's a great workout. Now, I imagine this is going to slam and make a little bit of noise. Apparently. Oh. We got it. We got it. So I hope you enjoyed that because it was so, uh, so cool to be in West Virginia for the first time, to go to Greenbrier for the first time, and then to see what everyone lines up to see, and that is Greenbrier, what was actually a place to go as we were ready to fight in one night uh, up until 1991, top secret. Meanwhile, go to Fox Nation. I got four new episodes. I got over 30 now of these different examples of what made America great, and I think we need to reaffirm that. Thanks for listening. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.